1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Food. My name is Keith Duhamel, the host of the channel. Today, I would like to welcome Cindy Lobel, Assistant Professor of History at Lehman College, as she talks about her new book, Urban Appetites Food and Culture in Nineteenth Century New York. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Food. My name is Keith Duhamel the host of the channel. Today, I would like to welcome Cindy Lobel, Assistant Professor of History at Lehman College, as she talks about her new book, Urban Appetites, Food and Culture in 19th Century New York. Welcome to the show, Cindy.
0: Thanks. How are you?
1: Very well, thank you. Um, I first wanted to say I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book um, and the history of uh, how... Manhattan became a gastronomic capital for the world. Thank Um, you. You're welcome. Uh, Would you mind giving us a little brief overview of your background and uh, what led you to write this book?
0: Sure. I uh, am a history professor at uh, Lehman College in the Bronx, and I started out this book. This book actually started as my dissertation uh, at the CUNY Graduate Center. Where I studied history. So it's been a long, it was a long process. (laughs) Um, and I started out with an interest in food in the 19th century U.S. And I found that there were a lot of references in the literature, in the primary source literature to food, um, and eating. Kind of like today. (laughs) And that led me to be interested in why there was this kind of preoccupation with food and eating, which then led me into studying those sources more directly and fully, and in the end, I found that there was a very big connection between the growth of New York City and all of these food changes, food-related changes that are occurring in the 19th century that then kind of leads to this preoccupation, I think, or connects to this preoccupation of food.
1: Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, One of the things I I enjoyed most about the book was how you've kind of differentiated different periods and different aspects of um, food in that you explored public markets and the uh, evolution of grocers, um, restaurants, uh, family homes, and kitchens. Mm
0: -hmm. Could you
1: start to chat a little bit about how you decided to start with that particular period um, at the beginning of the 19th century and then moved forward?
0: Yeah, so when the project started out, it was a much bigger, not surprisingly, I know that that is often the case, uh, a much bigger focus, I thought I was going to look at the whole United States, but that very quickly became, um you know, both unwieldy and also, um you know, not as as fruitful in terms of what I wanted to, you know, where, where the argument was kind of was going. And so, um as it turned out, I found that this project was much more of an urban history project than I expected it to be in the beginning. I thought it was going to be a history of food. But really, it ends up being a lot more a history of the growth of New York City, and that serves as kind of in-depth to the way that people change how they get their food, how they eat their food, the settings that they eat their food in. And so all of that kind of led into the development of the chapters. So um, the first thing that I start out with is the growth of New York and the urbanization of New York City, the shift really from a small seaport uh You know, while bustling and busy and important, it was not certainly the New York City that we, that we, you know, have come to know today. Uh, and so I start out with, you know, understanding how that growth occurs and, uh, you know, major population, uh, growth over the course of the 19th century, uh, major geographic growth over the course of the 19th century. And then in turn, that really has a major impact on how people get their food and the settings in which they eat it. So the first thing is uh, the market shift from, uh, you know, this public market system where all New Yorkers are served by the public markets into a more retail food system where people get their food at small shops closer to their houses rather than going to the public markets, which is that by really the mid 19th century become more of a wholesale venue. And then Next is the rise of restaurants, which a lot of people don't realize that restaurants actually have a history in New York. New York is so associated with restaurants that people, I always say, kind of think that New York was born with a Zagat guide. Um, uh-huh. And, of course, that's not the case. You know, they just don't arrive and open a restaurant in the 1600s. So it's really not until the 19th century that you have proper, freestanding restaurants to serve meals off the menu. And the reason that it, it takes until then to happen is because You don't really have a need for restaurants until you have a growing city where people live in one place and work in another and need to find meal options near their work. And then that also then subsequently has an impact on the home. So as the home becomes more of a kind of domestic space, especially for the middle class and less of a productive space in terms of commerce, (coughs) excuse me, the dining room becomes really important in terms of kind of selling out middle class status and um, uh, uh, being a place where the family kind of comes together at the end of the day for the family meal. And then the last piece is the, t- the growth of New York in the way that we understand it today as a real international food center. So you have the you know this, in- this great influx of immigrants over the course of the 19th century that really influences where food is coming from and how it is um, being then in turn also sent out. Uh,
1: into the world from New York. There's definitely quite an evolution there in the the way that uh, New York has become the urban center of uh, food. And uh, you've addressed things in a very concrete manner. I I think in Chapter 2, you touch on how the Industrial Revolution really had a serious impact on this evolution of an urban setting. Could you talk a little bit more about how you found that to be?
0: Um, I'm sorry, I missed the beginning of the question.
1: um this in chapter two, um uh, there seems to be a a focus on how industrialization seems to have made a significant impact on the evolution of an urban setting. Could you talk a little bit more about how you kind of connected that to the whole food concept?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. so there's so technology is very, very important in terms of both the growth of the city. Not just New York, you know, the city in general as an entity nationally and internationally. Um, and uh, that also links up to uh, industry and the industrial revolution, the market revolution, where more and more uh, Americans are kind of tied into a market economy versus the more subsistence plus economy of say, the 18th century. So um, these these factors, um, for example, uh, steamship for uh, a really important uh, development in in you know for the rise of New York City is the is the opening of the Erie Canal uh, in 1825, which really uh, it solidifies New York City's position as the the Empire of Trade because it extends the, the hinterlands for New York all the way to the Midwest. So now you know the canal today is a very kind of quaint mode of transportation because we have you know rocket ships and jumbo jets, but in the 19th century, the canal was a very, very fast form of transportation, <laughs> uh, which is funny because, yeah, I mean, it's a mule pulling a, a barge, basically. Um, but it was very fast, and it actually allowed for overland transport of goods that prior to that point would have been prohibitively expensive to carry over land. So the canal uh, reduces the price of carrying bulky goods by 95%. It makes it now finally cheaper. To send goods a few miles overland over, within the United States, than to send it overseas. So before that point, it was cheaper to send goods by ship to London than it was just a few miles overland within the United States. And so that really makes a big difference in terms of being able to bring, say, bulky grains from the Midwest into New York City. And it also allows for the manufactured goods of New York City and the imported goods that are coming from New York New York ports to be sent all the way to the Midwest. So that really has a phenomenal impact on New York and on where the food is coming from that comes into New York and how much more food you can bring into New York. And also the immediate area around New York is affected as well. So these areas that were closer to New York that previously were providing for, uh, were providing wheat and, um, dairy and other foodstuffs now can turn to very intensive agriculture of perishable goods, lettuce, strawberries, um, other kinds of perishable fruits, so say Long Island, um, uh, New Jersey, close to New York, Connecticut, close to New York, Westchester, or what we now know of as the Bronx. <laughs> uh, those areas now are producing this intensive agricultural, these intensive agricultural goods for the markets in New York City, and the uh, areas farther north and west are now producing these bulkier items including wheat and and other grains and also um, dairy, dairy kind of moves upstate. Now that you can get things close uh, to New York more quickly by these new forms of transportation. So the canal is one, steam is another, Um, eventually of course you have railroads and these uh, transportation developments are really crucial in terms of uh, expanding the input into New York in terms of food.
1: Which which in turn gives a lot of people an option a, a variety of more options available to them for food stuff.
0: Yes, they do have a, a, many more options available, and those items tend to be cheaper because um, you know you're not paying as much for the the carriage of them. However, there is a sort of course a flip side, which I also uh, address in the book, which is that um, the same these same kinds of technological developments are also changing uh, the um, the way that people are living in the city. So as you have, the geographic growth, um, people are living more in class, um, in neighborhoods that are associated with particular social classes. So you start to have, before the city grows, and when it's a walking city, everything is kind of mushed together. So there are wealthier streets and wealthier blocks in the 18th and early 19th century in New York, but you have really, you're they're very close to the less wealthy um, blocks and streets. But as you have transportation within the city that allows people to live in one place and work in another, you have early suburbanization. So you have suburbs in New York in places like Greenwich Village and Gramercy Park and, and places that now are considered downtown in Manhattan, mm-hmm. but in the first half of the 19th century are kind of on the edges of the city. And those are very wealthy areas. And meanwhile, you also start to have the development of Working class neighborhoods and, uh, slum areas like, uh, the notorious Five Points, um, near the Lower East Side. And as you have the spread of the population, you also have, as I mentioned before, um, the, uh, people relying more on local private markets, uh, private food shops in order to get their food. So even though there's more and more goods coming into the city, the way that those goods are distributed is becoming socially stratified according to neighborhood. So we think of food deserts as a really contemporary development, you know, real 20th, late 20th, early 21st century development. But in fact, that association between geography, class, and access to uh, food really goes back to this point in time in the 19th century. <laughs>
1: Fascinating. Um, so you you continue on talking about some uh, of the issues with uh, politici- politicizing with, uh, like say, Tammany Hall and the, the structures of the politics that are involved um, in manufacturing of foods. Could you t- talk a little bit more about how that has impacted the uh, evolution of the urban setting?
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you asked that question because that's the second piece of what I was just talking about, which is that not only do you have uh, social stratification in terms of uh, and the increasing connection between social between geography class and and food quality, but also even though you you have so much more food coming in and so much more potential variety coming into new york city, um and that's uh, linked to the transportation developments, but it's also linked to other technologies like ice and early forms of refrigeration, which are more like a cooler <laughs> um, so that you you could, so food can last longer. Um and the seasons are extended because when you can bring in um uh fruit from the south by steamship, you can get fruit, uh summer fruits earlier than you could when you have a very kind of regional, local catchment area. So all of that is, is great. You know, you do have the potential for more diversity, but there's all these bottlenecks in terms of getting the goods into the actual market. So the market system is set up to uh to service a population of thirty, forty, fifty thousand people. You know, in the in the uh beginning of the nineteenth century, the population of New York is only thirty thousand um in, in eighteen hundred. But when these goods are coming in, the population by by the uh by eighteen sixty the population of New York is eight hundred thousand. So you have um you have many more people that 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 are are being served, and you have also um distribution networks that are set up for this much smaller city, so the goods are coming down, the goods are coming in from the south or from the west via the Erie canal um and then down the Hudson River, but they can't get them off the boats and into the markets. and so there's a lot of spoilage and um a lot of um overcrowding in the markets and just really not very uh sanitary conditions in the market. And that is exacerbated, that situation is exacerbated by the fact that you have an increasingly corrupt and um, really rough and tumble uh, political system in New York City with, you know, machine politics and Tammany Hall, which is really ruling New York by the mid-19th century. And they, rather than their predecessors in the early republic, who saw the markets as a civic good and a civic kind of service, uh, Tammany Hall really sees the public market as a way to line their pockets. So there's shakedowns of market vendors. Um, market vendors have to pay fees to the city and they'll ask them to pay, you know, exorbitant fees or they sell the market stalls. They're leased annually to the market vendors and Tammany Hall would do things like they would sell market, they would lease market stalls that were already leased. So they would get, you know, double the money. Um, and uh, all these, you know, various kinds of forms or ways of, of uh of taking money uh, on the part of the politicians from the market vendors and and not really overseeing them in any way or regulating them in the way that they were intended to be regulated, and that has an impact on the quality of the food that's coming out of the market.
1: So yeah, there's somewhat, this is the paradox of the technology and industrialization that's existed now within uh, an urban setting. So That's
0: that right. A, in
1: the book, I call it the flip side of abundance. Okay. Um, yeah. That's great. Um, and it's, uh, you wrote in uh, the book that it eventually led to the progressive era um, of reform. Um could you speak a little bit about what that reform was and how that? I mean, we kind of touched on why that came about, but how how did it eventually take hold and and really start to reform the the way food was being managed and processed within the city?
0: Yeah, so um, that's right. You know, we 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 look when we when we look at history, we often look at it in these little you know uh, you know periods that are kind of arbitrarily imposed. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, we, we say, oh, this is the antebellum period, and this is the Gilded Age, and this is the progressive era. era. But, you know, those uh, eras really bleed into one another. So uh, some of the reforms that are associated with food that we that we really think of as progressive era reforms, like um, the pure food and drug reforms, had their roots in uh, this earlier period where we start to see the industrialization of food. So one of the things that I... Uh, concentrate on a lot in the book is um, is this tainted uh, milk scandals of the mid-19th century in New York um, where I mentioned that uh, the dairy products are coming in from, from north of New York. So Orange County um, about an hour, an hour and a half two hours north of New York City um, and the, the dairy can come in by a train by the mid-19th century and that milk is is good milk, but within the city, the way that uh, dairy was supplied, so especially for people who couldn't afford the milk that was essentially imported from upstate, was at uh, what they called dairy distilleries. So these were actually distilleries where they would take the grain and use it for distilling liquor, and then they would feed it to the cows. So uh, this was a way to kind of use up the byproducts, of distilling on the part of the distillers, um, by keeping these dairies attached. So they would feed this, the, uh, what they called the swill, uh, from the distillery process, just, you know, alcohol laden grain. Uh, <laughs> they would feed it to the cows and then they would milk the cows and then they would sell that milk. And, uh, people who could afford, the so middle class people and, and elite people could afford to bring the milk in and have milk delivery from upstate but poor New Yorkers could not afford that. And so they were getting their milk from the distilleries and it was known as swill milk and people knew about it. It was not a a secret that, Mm -hmm. uh, that the cows were being fed this, uh, you know, painted grain, but there were all kinds of denials on the part of the swill milk vendors that there was any problem with that, which to our mind sounds insane, (laughs) but, you know, there's all kinds of things where that happens, right? Where, uh, we, you know, for, for years and years and years, doctors and, um, and, and all kinds of other people denied that cigarettes smoking was bad for your health. So, um, so they knew this was happening, but there was a lot of denial about the problems that it caused. But to people who were not in denial, it was pretty clear. For one thing, the cows did not look very good. They had, um, they had, uh, deformed hooves. They, were, they had ulcers on their bodies. They also were, were housed in really terrible conditions. I mean, you can imagine what those stables looked like. They had no exercise. And so they were giving out a really... And also the milk smelled. It was very thin. So it just seemed pretty obvious that the milk wasn't, you know, high-quality high milk. And people were getting sick, and especially children, uh, who were the most likely... The children of the poor were the most likely to be drinking this slow milk. So in the 1850s... Um, Frank Leslie's, which was Leslie's illustrated magazine um, or illustrated newspaper, which was a kind of middle-class illustrated newspaper, did a big expose on the slow milk stables in New York City. And there was a lot of outcry about it. Um, And the city actually launched an investigation, but of course the people who were involved in the investigation were... uh, you know, timely politicians who were kind of in the pocket of the swill milk dealers. So it didn't really go anywhere. But it did go somewhere in that, you know, it got certain reformers very involved in demanding um, cleaner and purer milk. And eventually, uh, when the time was better for that kind of reform, the mid-19th century is not really a reform era in that way. I mean, there's a lot of reform in the 1850s, but not in terms of government regulation of the food supply. But eventually, the, the time was ready for that um, in the progressive era. And so these kinds of um, uh, 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 you know, the steps were laid down for taking um, action in terms of legislation to ensure a better supply of food.
1: Yeah. So the exposure that was provided kind of led to the whole ref- reforming of uh, acts and processing of foods.
0: Yeah, I mean, eventually we'll see the kinds of um, of uh, of legislation in the progressive era.
1: Um, then the next chapter I'd like you to talk a little bit about is actually one of my favorites is to, to see and be seen. And you had noted restaurants um, became the central role of business and social life. Um, but it also kind of uh, touched on gender issues, ethnicity issues, class um, separation. So if you'd like to talk a little bit about that, uh, that would be great.
0: Yeah, I I, I have a a soft spot in my heart for the restaurants, too. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, again, uh, this is definitely, people sometimes ask me what was most surprising to me in researching the book, and it definitely was, you know, the sort of development of restaurants because it is easy to think that, you know, restaurants go back as as long as the history of New York. Um, And so what happens in the early 19th century, as I mentioned before, is that as the city grows geographically, um, Many people, especially, um, businessmen and, and, uh, male laborers need a place to work away from their, I mean, need a place to eat away from their homes. Prior to that point, you ate at home and dinner actually, uh, was the, the, uh, midday meal was the biggest day, meal of the day and dinner occurred in the middle of the day. Um, and that's because people just, you know, Went from their workshops to their houses, which we were either connected or right next door, and uh, then they could go right back to work. But once you start to have commuters, that that changes, and in fact, um, a lot of the commentary about the beginnings of restaurants in New York really uh, refers to them as commuter institutions. Um, there's a New York Times article in the 1850s about restaurants that is subtitled um, "How New Yorkers." sleep uptown, and eat downtown. <laughs> um, so really, you know, making very clear that connection between commuting and the rise of restaurants. So the earliest restaurants, and again, as a restaurant, I mean a freestanding establishment that serves meals on a menu. Because uh, prior to that, all, really all you had was taverns, where uh, they did serve meals in the tavern, but it was uh, food was included in the price of lodgings. It tended to be much more of a a place where people who were in from out of town would eat. and uh, New Yorkers might go to taverns, but it was more likely to be for drinking than for eating their meals. <laughs> Excuse me. So when you start to have this uh, this commuter need, then you start to have the beginnings of restaurants. So those early restaurants cater to men, uh, men who are, to businessmen, and they serve the midday lunch, and uh, they were, there was a kind of a type that emerges by the 1830s called the six eating house and they're really short order eating houses. So they were famous for having terrible food um, and a really loud environment and very, you know, uh, chaotic environment uh, and for getting their patients in and out very, very quickly so that they could return to work because New York, you know, is this commercial center and already has this image of hustle and bustle and not being able to spare time to actually eat. Uh, because business had to be transacted. So those restaurants were, they were certainly not fine dining. <laughs> and they were very male. They really didn't even allow women in. Um, and, uh, so there's, that's sort of one track. And then another track for the restaurants is the kind of fine dining restaurant that goes out at the hotel. Um, so the hotel, the luxury hotels like the Astor House that opens in the 1830s. Uh, the St. Nicholas Hotel, which opens in the 1850s. They have very, very opulent dining rooms and meal service, uh, that were, were, again, meals were included in the price of lodging. So you did have some restaurants to kind of come out of that, um, and serve, uh, food in a fine dining establishment. And of course, the, the first and certainly most famous of those is Delmonico's. So Delmonico's opens in the 1830s. It's really just a cake and coffee shop, but it it quickly develops into um, the restaurant that really introduces fine dining to the United States. So there's a very big difference between, you know, the atmosphere that you're going to see at Delmonico's and the atmosphere that you're going to see in a six-penny house like Sweet's. Um And, of course, the price is very different, too, versus, you know, six pennies. Six, it's called the six-penny house because you can get a meal for six pence versus delmonico's where a meal would cost like two fifty, which was um half the uh, the salary of a of a laborer at the time so um so there, there those kind of spell out the the extremes in terms of the early restaurants in New York and then very quickly you have all this kind of segmentation so you go from you know a handful of restaurants in the eighteen thirties well no not in the eighteen thirties in the eighteen teens to um thousands by the middle of the 19th century and there's a real range Uh, there's the short order houses there's the elite restaurants there's also restaurants that emerged specifically to cater to ladies who are downtown shopping from uh their homes and you know the outskirts of the city so you have taylor's restaurant which is a very famous ladies restaurant and its competitor thompson's and they they serve ladies um men could come in but they had to be escorted by a lady So Taylor's actually had a separate dining room for men uh who were alone and the idea of the ladies restaurants was that uh, there, uh, for women who were concerned about their reputations and who wanted to maintain respectability uh being out in a in a public place where liquor was served or um uh, where you had this kind of chaotic atmosphere could be damaging to uh, a woman's reputation there also were uh connections between uh, early restaurants and prostitution. Um, some of the uh, restaurants that cater to bachelors, for example, also um, have like private boxes and places where where men can make assignations. And so, uh, for that reason, you have this kind of proscribed area where um, they created these more comfortable spaces for ladies who were concerned about their reputation. And the way they did that was really with atmosphere. So they kind of tried to replicate the domestic parlor, which was considered um, a very female-oriented space, a very respectable space. So the ladies' restaurants had, you know, curtains that were very lush and marble floors and mahogany tables and um, a a kind of refined atmosphere so that women could feel comfortable eating in them and also maintaining their respectability. And then you had immigrant restaurants, you had restaurants that catered to theater crowd, you had... uh, you had Buttercake Dicks, which was a famous uh, all-night donut shop um, that catered to newsboys and firemen, uh, newspaper men who were up late at night or early in the morning. You had a real range um, of restaurants that uh, started to develop pretty early on uh, as the restaurant sector expands in the old. Okay,
1: great. And then I think one of the you just made about uh, the domestic callers for women um, kind of leads us into the next chapter of um, the middle class and the emergence of what you refer to as the domestic goddess um, ideology. Could you talk a little bit about that and um, how that impacted uh, the emerging middle class?
0: Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> so as you start to have more separation, uh, of productive work and home space in the uh, you know early part of the nineteenth century, um, you uh, the 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 home starts to take on this uh, imagery and ideology, the middle class home um, of domesticity. so the kind of ideas that we have about home today, you know the home as a sacred space or the home as a space of comfort in the ideal. Uh, really starts to develop in this period in the early 19th century. You don't have these kind of pay-ins to home and domesticity, uh, before industrialization. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, because the home really, uh, you know, it serves a lot of purposes in the pre-industrial period, um, including as a workspace, as a space for, um, pro- for production, um, the ideas of privacy, even about comfort, really are in development in the early 19th century. And so um, so in the ideology of the middle class, the home definitely takes on this kind of home sweet home idea. And ladies' magazines like Goethe's Ladies Book or um, uh, the Ladies' Home Journal. Um, also, there's a lot of prescriptive literature geared towards women, novels. Um, geared towards middle class women that really celebrate the home and the mother, middle class mother as, um, as, uh, this kind of haven in a heartless world. Now, you know, I want to be very clear that that, it, that is an ideology. It doesn't necessarily reflect, uh, the lived reality even of the people that it's intended towards. And certainly not working class people or, um, enslaved people, right? And for them, the home is even, uh, for domestic servants or uh, enslaved people who are working in these homes, uh, they are a place of production, of productivity, and they are a place of of work and of labor. Um, but in the ideology, uh, that's how the home is represented. And as I mentioned before, the dining room um, kind of becomes this uh, separate requisite space in this uh, middle class home ideology. So, the parlor does as well, and there's actually a little more, historians studied more the parlor as a place where, um, where domesticity is enacted uh, in the 19th century home. But the dining room does as well. I mean, for so one thing, if you think about it, these homes are the, the, the um, uh, architects and domestic advisors and people who write about and think about the home um, are encouraging much more specialized space in the new middle-class home of the 19th century. So before you didn't really have dining rooms in the middle-class home because uh, you had, you know, one room that served multiple purposes. So you might dine in there, but you also might uh, lay out uh, mats for people to sleep on if you had guests staying over. It also could be a sitting room, um, uh, more of like a den, uh, as well as a place where the family ate. and. Uh, As you have um, more space within the middle class home, uh, you know, uh, workshops aren't in those houses anymore, uh, offices aren't in those houses anymore, now that space is the extra space is given over to uh, more of these domestic pursuits. And the dining room plays a really important role there. So um, the advisors, again, are really upset in New York in particular because New Yorkers The sort of typical row house in New York uh, had two parlors on the main floor, a front parlor and a back parlor, and the back parlor was supposed to be the dining room. But uh, New Yorkers didn't want to use that every day. They sort of set it aside for company, which might sound familiar to people even today, (laughs) um, because we often don't use our dining rooms if you have one uh, all the time. People will eat in the kitchen on an everyday basis. uh, so, in, so back then, what they did instead of eating in their dining room every day was that they would eat in the basement in a den that was near the kitchen. And the domestic advisors were horrified by that because this space in the house that was the least desirable, the least nice, was the space where this sound, this daily family reunion now was taking place. So there was a lot of discussion in the prescriptive literature about the home and about the dining room demanding essentially that middle class people should eat in their, in their actual dining room every day. And so this leads into another sort of interesting point about this kind of public-private idea of the home is that even though they're saying that the home should be a space that's comfortable for the family and that's really set aside for domestic pursuits, the way that they suggested to go about this, I'm talking about domestic advisors like Catherine Beecher or um, Andrew Jackson Downing or Calvert Box. These guys are uh, uh, architects the way that they suggested that people should go about creating this comfortable domestic space for the family was through consumerism. So through actually really participating in the market, going out and buying carpets and buying dining room furniture and buying all kinds of uh, accoutrements for dining and on, you know, uh, multiple piece flatware sets and multiple piece uh, sets of dishes. And to really participate in this consumer economy as a way of making their private domestic space um comfortable for the family.
1: Okay. I, I know that um in there you talk about the um increase in people having um you know advanced cooking stoves and in house refrigeration, which then led to somewhat of a decline in the marketing needs of people. Um could you speak a little bit about how that impacted the urban climate at the time?
0: Yeah, that's right. So the technology, um, as, you know, I mentioned some of the technologies that, that affect uh, the foods that are coming into the market, so the kind of big technologies, but uh, like railroads and canals and steam transport, um, ice uh, harvesting. But there's also smaller technologies that affect the household. Um, so the, you have, again, this kind of rudimentary form of of a, of a refrigerator, which becomes kind of, again, in the domestic literature, are more requisite in the middle-class house. So from the beginning of the 19th century where nobody has a cooler in their home to the end of the 19th century where um, cookbooks and uh, prescriptive literature talks about the um, how common it was to have these... Again, they called them refrigerators, but they're really more like ice boxes, um, to have them in the home and cookbooks, you know, the recipes would, would reference the, the refrigerator, you know, put this item in the refrigerator and, you know, let it cool. Um, and then even bigger was the cook stove, of course, because uh in the very beginning of the nineteenth century you have open hearth cooking and the cook stove is developed as a new technology that people really had to get used to. Um, and it was attractive the cook stove because uh the fuel was much cheaper. Wood was very expensive and becoming scarcer. And so to use wood for cooking became very difficult, especially in the city. And so coal was cheaper and um, the cook stove made it possible to cook with coal, but it was a very different kind of cooking. So it took a while for people to kind of sign on to uh, installing a cook stove. And there are multiple improvements and, and, dozens and dozens and dozens of patents from the 1830s on for the cook cookstove um, to try to improve it, to make it a little easier to use. I mean, it involves a lot of training to use a cook cookstove. Um, it involves a lot of maintenance for the servants, especially in the middle class family. The stove had to be black, for example, so that it didn't rust. Um, it uh, allows you to try out different cooking techniques. Like, you could bake and you could roast and you could um, boil, you know, in one device, but it also uh, was hard to control uh, in a way that was quite different from the open heart. So, the cook stove, there's lots of kind of uh, comedic and less (laughs) comedic stories about the cook stove and how difficult it was to kind of get used to this new technology. Um, but, you know, it was there to stay. And by the end of the 19th century, well, really by the, 18th, by the middle of the 19th century, again, the uh, cookbooks and the prescriptive literature really reflect the fact that people have really converted to the cook. So there's not a lot of recipes offered anymore for open-hearth cooking, except there's a kind of form of nostalgia.
1: So the, the restaurant not only served as a, uh, as you put it, an aspirational model for decor and furnishing, but also for people to start experimenting with different cooking um techniques and styles,
0: yeah, that's right. I mean this is another thing that i i, I really liked and that i there was discovery and researching um the book was um, was the way in which the yeah this is sort of this is another way in which this kind of public commercial world works its way into the home, so you see people wanting to cook foods that they ate in the restaurant so the the New York Times starts a cooking column for example and people will write into the cooking column and say can you please provide a recipe for the rolls that I tasted at this restaurant or um or that I've gotten in a German bakery uh so there's you know this kind of trying to emulate the foods that they've eaten outside and bring them into the homes and the same thing with decor so there's Kind of instructions from Delmonico's on how to set a table, or you have the beginnings of celebrity chefs. <laughs> so you have cookbooks that are being put out by uh, chefs who who put their bona fides at the beginning. So it'll say, you know, this chef was, um, uh, or th- this cookbook was written by the, the the former chef at the Astor House Hotel, or um, you know, at the most famous restaurants in New York. So these connections being drawn between what's happening in the home. And what is happening outside of the home in terms of restaurants and hotels and, and uh, other commercial food spaces?
1: It's a period of time when consumerism really started to take hold.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of connections. I mean, there's also <laughs> fun, um, a fun, a uh, fun connection between where they have uh, uh, connections between the editors of the women's magazines and the housework stores. Um, so, you know, New York is really a center of this as well. New York is really a, cent- it's a center of publishing, of course, and it's also the center of, um, of manufacturing of um, of housewares. So Lower Broadway and what's now Soho is, um, is just, ro- it's, you know, that's Ladies Mile. And they have um, stores and also, you know, all kinds of houseware stores that sell home furnishings both to the local trade and also ship out um, around the country. At, um, there's uh, probably the most famous of those stores was uh, Howitt's department store on lower Broadway, and that's where uh, Mary Todd Lincoln got all the china and the dishes for the White House. You know, she was a famous shopper, um, and she came to New York to do the shopping for that, uh, to furnish the White House. So, you know, New York is really a center of that, and then these stores would send samples, or the manufacturers of the textiles would send samples to the the women's magazines so that they would kind of plug um, these manufacturers in the pages of the magazine, much like they do today.
1: Um, As we head into the last chapter, um, one of the the things you write that really uh, struck with me was you wrote, conflict exists among very things that made Metropolis the Metropolis unique: immigrant diversity and cultural differences, um, and how that kind of closed out the uh, 19th century. Could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so I mean, this is of course uh, the 19th century is um, when New York really becomes an immigrant city. And I'm, you know, I'm hesitating as I say that because, of course, it's always been an immigrant city. Um, you know, immigration uh, uh, goes back to the, the very beginnings of the founding of New Amsterdam and new, the new, new Netherlands. But what happens over the course of the 19th century is that New York becomes a majority immigrant city, and that has, you know, an undeniable impact in terms of the cosmopolitanization of, New York City's food culture. So you have um, you know, the rise of immigrant restaurants, you have the beginnings of um or the development of kind of new foods um that are introduced to New York by immigrants, you have um you also have a lot of food coming in from abroad and New York kind of that uh, serves as processor and distributor of that food. So there's this very international flavor to New York City, New York City's food culture that developed over the course of the 19th century. And people would uh, really celebrate that. Like editors and, and journalists would um, celebrate the cosmopolitan food culture of New York and the fact that you know you could basically travel around. The, they would say you could travel around the world in New York without leaving the city by eating at all these different. Um, you know, immigrant uh food establishments. But that um you know, there's there's a complicated relationship at that point between celebration of what we would call ethnic foodways and kind of just a little bit of disdain <laughs> for um for the for the for the the foods that's also reflecting a kind of um Discomfort on the part of native-born uh, Euro-Americans for some of the newer people who are coming in to to New York. Um,
1: it, it also, um, what I, I took from it was that it, it led to some regional further regionalization um, within the city. Um, could you talk about how that may have defined um, the progression at, through the end of the nineteenth century into the early twentieth century?
0: you mean, what do you mean by, you mean the development of the, the regionalization
1: of the city based on the ethnic, ethnic groups and how they may have settled into a particular area, um, which kind of then goes back to that geographic component you spoke about.
0: Yeah. So uh, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're asking, but you'll correct me. If, or you'll, you'll uh, follow up. <laughs> um, so as, as immigrants come into New York and, you know, there's this kind of, uh, to I mean, not waves, but two, uh generations of immigrants uh, coming into New York in the 19th century. So the 1830s, 1840s, you have large numbers of uh, Irish and German immigrants. In the second half of the 19th century, you see more people coming from um, Eastern and Southern Europe, some Asian immigrants coming into New York at that time. Although uh, most of the Chinese immigrants who come to New York in the second half of the 19th century actually are coming from the West Coast. They're not coming directly from China. Um, and they settle not all over the city, but they settle in immigrant pockets, uh, in New York, especially, um, downtown. So like the Lower East Side, um, you have Little Germany or Klein Deutschland. You have, um, the Irish really dominating the Five Points. You have, um, you have African-American enclaves in New York, even though they've been here for a long time. Um, there are, you know, certain areas that are, um, more associated with African-Americans. you also have, of course, Little Italy. Uh, you have the Jewish Lower East Side in the second half of the 19th century. Um, and in these neighborhoods, you, uh, you have all these mitigating institutions that, uh, that these uh, newly arrived immigrants create in order to help kind of ease the process of settlement. So those include, you know, religious institutions, um, ethnic newspapers. And of course, food, food establishments. So you have restaurants with reminders from home. You have cafes and, uh, um, groceries and they serve a really important role for immigrants. Uh, first of all, uh, they, they allow for entrepreneurship for, uh, for the, their owners. Um, it's kind of wedged into, um, economic mobility in New York City for, the owner the Italian owner of a cafe or um the uh, uh the Chinese owner of a Chinese restaurant. Um and they also serve a really important role within the in the neighborhood, within the immigrant communities as um not just places to get a bite to eat and a reminder of home, but also um the Chinese grocery for example serves as a post office, um, where letters from China can be distributed, or as an informal job center, um, a place where networking opportunities happen. Um, there was discrimination against the Chinese that they weren't allowed to put their money in banks, so the groceries served as banks. Um, the Italian groceries also did that kind of banking, um, played that banking role. I mean, this is not necessarily a uh, a place where you wanted to put your money. They could have a very serious rate, um, but they they were you know they went well beyond just. You know selling or serving food, they were very important institutions within the neighborhood and something that's interesting that happens is that you know if you don't have a lot of native born uh, you know euro descended New Yorkers going into these neighborhoods to eat in these restaurants I mean you would have some who were been to some, but for the most part, um the people who went to these immigrant run restaurants and you know, the early, the early generation of them were people from within the neighborhood. Um, so you had, you know, Italian immigrants going to Italian cafes. Um, eventually there's this kind of crossing over, um, where you had, you know, Italian restaurants opening uptown, but it was not, it was a kind of a hybrid cuisine that they would serve to cater more to, um, a, uh, an American palate.
1: Well Cindy, we've taken up a lot of your time and I really appreciate it. Um I'd we'd like to know what you're working on now, um and what projects you're thinking about uh getting into.
0: Yeah, um thank you. It's been it's been fun for me. Um I uh well, I'm currently working on a, a little bit of, uh well I'm not hundred percent away from this, but on a biography of Catherine Beecher. Uh, who actually I mentioned was a, a, a really important domestic advisor in the 19th century and also an education reformer. She's also the sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe um, and other famous Beechers. Uh, so that's what I'm doing right now. And uh, and then I also am really interested in this came out of, the, of of urban appetite in um, this man Thomas Downing who was. We haven't even talked about oyster sellers, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. but he was uh, an oyster man, an African-American oyster man who came up to New York from the Chesapeake and opened the most well-known and famous um, and most respected oyster house in in New York, and he's a really, really interesting figure um, who kind of parlayed his position um, as an oyster man into some measure of social and political power at a time that African Americans in New York really had very little of either. So those are next that's next up. <laughs>
1: excellent. excellent. Those are exciting projects and I look forward to hearing about them and uh, reading the books when they come out.
0: Thanks so much. Thank
1: you again for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. Uh Cindy we're we're stopped recording. I just want to thank you very much for uh your time and um sorry that we had some confusion trying to get this organized but I'm glad no we problem. were able- um what's going to happen now is this will be forwarded for to um new books and food history for um post production. Uh once okay. they do that, uh they will send me a URL connection and I will email that to you so that you can listen to the podcast if you'd like.
0: Okay, great. Did they edit
1: it? They did they will. They'll edit it and um they will do all their post production tweaking however they do that. Um Okay. And make sure all the little blips and sounds and things were removed. um, And we'll go from there.
0: Okay, great. Because at the very beginning, my name is not Cynthia. It's not. We went over the pronunciation of my last name, but it didn't occur to me to tell you.
1: I'm sorry. Okay, well, we'll make sure that it's put in I didn't want to correct it on
0: the thing, yeah. But, um, I mean, you did the second time you said it, you said Cindy. But I know it's a weird thing. My given name on my birth certificate is my nickname.
1: Oh, okay. We'll make sure that that's corrected at the beginning. Okay. Sorry about that, Cindy. No,
0: it's, it's fine. It's very, very common.
1: <laughs> okay. All
0: right. Well, Thanks thank you so again much.
1: for your time. I appreciate your uh, managing to make this happen. You have a yeah, great yeah. day. Thank you, too.